Welcome to this episode of the Culture and Inequality podcast. My name is Friselin de Kuipers and I'm the host of this podcast series. Today I'm talking about cultural beliefs about inequality with professors Magne Flemen and Jonathan Mice. So Magne, can you briefly introduce yourself? Uh, yes, uh, my name is Magne Flemen. I'm a professor of sociology at the University of Oslo, Norway. My work is uh, basically on in class analysis. It's about social inequality, but also about the cultural and political aspects of, of class divisions, mostly. Yes, thank you. And Jonathan, can you introduce yourself? Sure, yeah. So I'm Jonathan Meis. Uh, I'm currently a Marie Curie Fellow at uh, Erasmus Univers University Rotterdam, um, as well as a lecturer on sociology at Harvard University. Thank you. Very welcome to this podcast. I'm happy to have you here. Today we're talking about cultural beliefs about inequality. So in this podcast we've been talking about culture and inequality, so mostly about how culture uh, affects social inequalities, how it reflects it and how it reproduces them. But as we're nearing the end of this course, we're taking a step back and thinking of how people actually come to believe things about inequality. So what do people believe when they talk about inequality? Do people believe that it exists? How bad is it? Where does it come from? Is it a problem? And how are such beliefs shaped by people's society, culture, and per personal circumstances? And also, what are the consequences of these beliefs? Uh, so I'm talking with two people who have uh, written about this extensively and also have really pushed forward our thinking about inequality as something that not only exists, but something that, you know, that people have beliefs about. And these beliefs also have consequences. And before we will discuss this, I, will, like, I start with a surprise question, as always, so a question that I haven't prepared them for. And my surprise question is about your own beliefs about inequality. So I would like to ask you, uh, in terms of levels, equality or inequality in society, would you say there is an optimal level of social equality or inequality in societies, and why? And what society would you say historically has come closest to this sort of ideal balance? So I'm starting with Jonathan. Well, that is a really tough question, but but I yeah. do appreciate you asking uh, because it's. I mean, it gets to a really important point, which is when we talk about inequality and when we're worried and concerned about it, uh, we often don't have quite as clear a picture of what the alternative, what equality would indeed look like. So a lot of my um, my 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 discussions with students are are very much about about that. Like if we if we have problems with the, the, the practices of, of meritocracy, um, how would we design an alternative to it? What would that look like? Um, what conditions to, does that sort of need to meet? Um, but not to cop out of the question altogether, I guess my answer would be, um, you know, you need to design processes that provide some degree of equal opportunity, which is what most people would say, but it's really hard to, to do that without also doing something about inequality itself, so inequality of outcomes. And um, I think that perhaps independently from a process, right, if you can design a perfect meritocratic process, I think we would still want there to be limited inequality of outcomes, right? So even if things are like designed like a race, uh, like some sort of athletic competition, for instance, um, we don't want to, the results to be so consequential that they shape every every aspect of people's life. Now, 
what is a society that sort of comes close to that? Maybe we have to go back to before we established sedimentary societies. Maybe we need to go back to hunter-gatherer times, uh, which is the longest part, of course, of human history, uh, when there weren't such important sort of strong distinctions between people. It's only when we started accumulating surplus that you, you sort of you, you get these um, you get something to to um, uh, hoard and exclude people from, um, etc. So that will be my uh, slight cop out answer to your question. So the hundred gatherers. Uh, so <laughs> Magna, what about uh, you? So. Well, actually, I have an even bigger cop-out, actually, because <laughs> I tend to think that uh, for sociologists, that kind of discussion can be very hampering in a way that you're supposed to like spell out your ideal condition or something. I think, uh, actually, uh, it's often more productive for us to th look at social conditions that we think are wrong in some way, that we think po pose some kind of problem. And generally, actually, also for politics, I think it's often more productive for people to be in a kind of, um, how would you say, like uh, uh, thinking in negations, basically, I think. like. So, uh, for instance, you could look at the, the, the level of class reproduction or something and say, well, this is the amount of ad advantage uh, that you gain because of the, uh, the, the, the social status or class position of your parents. And we could say, this is clearly noxious. Nobody wants this <laughs> in, a, in a way. So in one way, that's my, that's my original cop-out. I would say, if, if pressed, I would say that to me, basically, the, the, one of the main problems of, of class inequality refers to the kind of, is about the, the power and advantage that, that, that people of, of uh, superior wealth and property enjoy. So basically, to me, like, the, the import, most important question about inequality is not so much about like, suppressing the difference in wage between, say, doctors and nurses or something like that, but to be able to limit the, the enormous advantage represented by, by huge, huge wealth and capital, both in terms of, the, or perhaps not principally in terms of life chances, but in, the, in terms of the possibilities that offers to influence politics and influence social development, basically. So maybe the closest uh, thing to something like that uh, in a differentiated advanced society would be something like Sweden in the 1970s <laughs> or something. <laughs> Yes. Well, that was uh, not exactly a cop out. So Sweden <laughs> or <laughs> or hunter gatherers. Uh, so well, let's return to this at the end and see uh, if we can be a bit more specific. So what surprised you most in today's readings? So for me, what surprised me most in reading both your articles actually is the surprising capacity of people to naturalize and legitimate inequality, mm -hmm. even when it's really, really not good for them. Because, you know, you both say, you know, we, we can't really say that in itself inequality is, but I think it's, it's clear that in some cases, some forms of inequality really harm people. And I think it's really surprising to see how people still believe that it's legitimate and that they subscribe also to inequalities that really harm them. Uh, and I think this is really something where you need also you know, explanations in terms of culture or morality or beliefs or belief systems to, to explain why people you know continue to accept things that really are not in their advantage. So that was my biggest surprise. So uh, Magna, were you <laughs> well, surprised by? 
Oh, several things actually. I'm not, I'm not sure where to begin. Uh, basically, as as someone who is uh, very infatuated with Dutch bicycling culture, I was I was surprised to learn that it's in decline. I I actually I own like a Bakfiets actually, and uh, <laughs> I tried to buy like a traditional Opafiets, but it's uh, very difficult to get one here. So uh, I was surprised, maybe disappointed, to learn about the decline of Dutch bicycling culture. Actually, well, it's but, not exactly in decline, <laughs> but becoming more differentiated. We can talk yeah. about that at the end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> apart from that, uh, I, I think there were many like. I was kind of, I guess, surprised because of my own ignorance about the, the kind of theoretical uh, perspective that you had on these developments in uh, in your paper on on, on bicycle and culture, especially about like the, the the decline of the trickle down effect, which is, I think, uh, um, a well known thing, but also how you theorized this as, as relating to the different or, or weakening of differentiation of national habitus was like a theoretical <laughs> surprise to me. As for Jonathan's paper, I was just. I don't know. I, I I guess I kind of, even though I should probably know better, I, I kind of think that, well, there must be like more opposition to inequality among people. People must like have some kind of gut feeling that things are unfair. And despite everything that you would get from Bourdieu or someone like that, where you would think about naturalization of inequalities, I guess I was kind of like surprised that it's 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 that strong, huh? <laughs> it's like, is it? Yeah. So that was kind of what surprised me about it. In a in a that's an, on a more like depressing note, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. So, yeah, thank you. So, Jonathan, for you, what surprised you most? Yeah, I, I thought what was surprising is how much um, your article on, on cycling sort of culture as, a, as an example of sort of analyzing this, this sort of natural, uh, national habitus kind of um, idea. Uh, I, was, I, I thought it was, was interesting how much it applied to um, the U.S. context in which I find myself now, where you also see this really sort of stark uh, distinction between sort of the hipsters with their fixed gear bikes and um, spending, you know, enormous amounts of money on their cycles versus uh, those people who, who use it because they may not be able to afford any other means of transportation. Uh, so you see that divide very, very clearly here on the streets of Cambridge and Boston, Massachusetts. Um, yeah, I guess what 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 I what I found interesting about um, um, Magnus' paper is how nasty and exclusionary those Norwegians are that we think of as the <laughs> <Yeah>. most egalitarian <laughs> people, <laughs> uh, right? So I mean, it just shows that you know people will always be able to find marks of distinction and ways of exclusion or ex excluding others, um, regardless uh, what what exactly the setting is. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. So we tend, I think we tend to think of, um, so maybe I should say that I'm from the Netherlands and so is Jonathan originally. So I think there is a belief, you know, that Scandinavians are sort of super gentle, friendly, <laughs> nice egalitarian people who are sort of have solved inequalities. But even there, it seems to be pretty tenacious indeed. It so, is a kind yes. of, it's almost, it's a sort of controversy actually in like, in especially in Norwegian sociology about this actually, because Prior to our uh, our contributions and and the other stuff that my co-author Vega Yarnes has been doing, there was all this. Uh, there was some qualitative work that showed that oh oh Norwegian middle class people they don't like to draw boundaries. They're very egalitarian. They don't like mm. to say that anything is better than anything else. And then w I guess uh, Vega and then me kind of had like this suspicion that there's something wrong with this picture. Like it's not it's not that picture perfect. 
And what what he uh, what especially Vegard found in his work was that if you ask people in general, like people have been doing, like, oh, th would you say that some literature is better than others, or how do you rank other people's tastes? Then they'll be very much like, oh no, I'm very democratic. I think everything is egalitarian. So the like the nasty things basically come out when you start to get like specific and concrete and have people talk about their own experiences, people they know, other places, their ex-boyfriends or ex-girlfriends or something. That's that's what brings it out <laughs> in a way. Which I think is interesting. So there's there's something to that kind of stereotype that people people it's kind of like you don't want to come off uh, come off as a racist, so you'll disavow racism in in some way. In the same way, it's like you disavow, disavow snobism. You don't want to be a snob, but you might in actual practice be one <laughs> still. Yeah. So we'll discuss that later more extensively. So for now, a very very brief introduction of the readings. As I said, we have three articles, one by Jonathan, one by Magnet, and one by myself. Um, so, Jonathan, could you very, very briefly say something about this article? What yeah, sure. So, I mean, the keywords really are inequality and meritocracy. And the question I try to, to address is basically why hasn't growing inequality um, been met with uh, greater public outcry? Um, how has has uh, sort of levels of inequality been been able to grow so so steeply uh, in recent decades without um, some sort of public mobilization against it? And my answer is that uh, that's it, it's really because inequality drives rich and poor people further away from each other. So when most of your family members, your your colleagues, uh, people in your neighborhood have similar levels of education and income then your social world, like the people you interact with on a daily basis, that isn't a very unequal setting. Um, and maybe the advantages that you enjoy, such as growing up with both parents or having enough money for your education, or perhaps even the barriers that you face are kind of the things that you share with everyone you know. So you consider them normal, uh, you normalize them. Um, so if, if that is indeed the case, um, then in highly unequal societies, people will paradoxically kind of be less able to see the full extent of inequality and also not be able to really appreciate the non-meritocratic and structural processes that shape life outcomes. Yes, thank you. So this is, we'll talk about this in more detail later because it actually also is a very rich international comparative data set that you show this in. So now you basically tell us the, the, the explanation of a pattern that you show and that we'll discuss in more uh, depth later. Uh, so Magna, can you briefly say something about the article that you wrote with uh, Vegar? Yeah, so so the the paper which is called uh, called a struggle on two fronts uh, is about the symbolic boundary work of people in the lower regions of the social space. So we're basically talking to people who have like a below average volume of capital, economic or cultural capital, and we talk to them about how they regard the other people basically, and we try to look at what kind of conceptual distinctions do they make when they try to explain who is on an equal footing to us and who is not and uh, what's wrong with them or what do we like about other people and things like that and we try to look at the kind of repertoires of discourse that they bring out. Thank you. So and finally there is a paper by myself on Dutch cycling culture. I uh, wrote this uh, originally as uh, an inaugural lecture uh, for the Norbert Elias chair. 
So it was, it started as an application of Norbert Elias and I wrote about cycling because I wanted to think about how, how nations come to differ. And one of the things where you really see this in the Netherlands where actually, you know, as I think everybody who's been there knows that people cycle a lot and then you move to another country like Belgium and all of a sudden pretty much everything is the same, but the, the bikes mostly disappear. Uh, so I tried to explain this and one of the things that I came up with actually that cycling has persisted in the Netherlands whereas it has disappeared. So what cycling tends to disappear when people become wealthier. So when people become richer, they they throw out their bicycles and bike cars and start. And in the Netherlands this hasn't happened. And I connect this with uh, an egalitarian ethos where it's actually really important to show that you are normal. So to not show off. And I think this is also something that you recognize in Norway. So, and this habit of not showing off and showing you're absolutely not a snob in any way can be symbolized very effectively by riding your bike. Uh, and this is something that is very typical for, for Dutchness. So it's also something that I'm afraid comes up in this podcast quite a bit because of my complete incapacity to, to, and address people as professors or by their last name. <laughs> and I've really tried, but I just, I just can't. So it's also, it's sort of a compulsive egalitarianism in, in manners. And it's so, and, and the example that I always gave to explain this is the Dutch royal family, which are, you know, they're really among the richest families in the world. And they, they not only ride their bikes, they really do, but they also make a point of riding their bikes and being seen doing this. So this this normalness or this egalitarianness is not only it's not only an ethos, but it's also a strong symbolic thing. So you have to show that you're normal and that you don't believe you're putting yourself above others in any way because that would be something that is severely sanctioned. So egalitarianism there really emerges as more like an ideology or a, or a, a normative system rather than a description. I remember very vividly when I first wrote down this, I wrote down a sentence, egalitarian is not, egalitarianism is not the same as equality. And you know, sometimes you have this sort of sentence that you write down, and it's like, wow, indeed, indeed. It's complete, it can, they're two completely different things. And they can be, and that's also why I, I thought in both your papers, it's the same thing. So the belief in how, how equality works really can be completely unrelated to actual social relations. So it can be, so it doesn't have to mm -hmm. be, it can be completely different. So that's actually what I wanted to talk to you about. And that's also why I invited both of you together. Uh, and it's interesting in the Netherlands, as in your paper, Magna, it's also the down to earthness that is stressed. And that is really something that people believe about themselves. So this is actually exactly what I wanted to talk about. So the, this, the really the thing that what people believe about social equality or social inequality and how it actually works are two things that are really not the same. So this is, and I think this is what your work speaks to. So we will discuss each of the three papers in more detail, starting with Jonathan's paper, I think because that's the more general, because it's, as we'll see, it's very sort of uh, uh, casting a wide net, uh, large-scale comparative, and I think then we move on to Magnus' paper, which sort of touches on a number of similar themes, but in more detail, using interview materials, really sort of looking at the discourses and repertoires that people draw upon when they discuss people who are above or below them. And then briefly to my paper, uh, where I to see what sort of themes are left. So Jonathan, first, can you 
briefly summarize, you already said something about this before, what you do in the paper? Yeah, yeah. So again, the puzzle is, is basically that, that we see growing levels of inequality in many Western countries. Um, but if we look at the long trend in public opinion, uh, which is what I do in this paper uh, with, with quantitative data, you basically see a lack of concern. In fact, in some of the most highly unequal countries and places, um, people uh, are the least worried, the least concerned about inequality. So misperceptions, um, people not knowing the facts about inequality um, plays some part in this, I argue. And um, of course, our belief in meritocracy, sort of those ideological beliefs, cultural beliefs we have play an important part. But they don't really, um, as such, explain why growing levels of inequality have gone hand in hand with lower levels of concern, which is what we of what we see across these Western countries. So that's what I'm trying to sort of explain um, and, and describe with these quantitative data. So can you say something about how you got to, how you came to study this topic? Yeah, that's um, a bit of a detour actually. So when I moved to the US, I was um, from, from Holland, I was really struck by a couple of sort of really distinctly American social problems. And one of them is mass incarceration, which um, is, is still at sort of a historic high level. So um, the U.S. incarcerates more people than um, any other country in the world. So puts um, them in prison. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, puts them in prison. Yeah, just, yeah. And, and what's interesting is that it's not just that, that there's like a stock of people who are all uh, rotting away in prison, uh, although that is part of the reality, but it's a huge revolving door where every year about 600,000 people leave prison and another 600,000 people go to prison or sent to, to jails and prisons. So... Um, what I was interested in is what happens to these people when they come out and why do so many of them end up back incarcerated. So uh, the, the way I studied this was, was in downtown Boston, there was an organization that tried to help people provide all sorts of services. And I kind of shadowed um, uh, uh, social workers, people working there for about a year and spent as much time as I could inside, the, sort of on the premises, sort of just hanging out with men and women that are returning from, from jail, that are receiving some sort of uh, participating in some sort of group projects that are all meant to help uh, what they deem, what they call their re-entry, their re-entry in society, as if they were out of society, now they're coming back to society. Um, and one of the things that really struck me about the work that, that I, um, well, that they, that they were doing there was that um, there was a sort of a pretty broad acknowledgement that some of the factors that got it got people incarcerated in the first place had to do with you know the opioid epidemic um with lack of resources with poor education with um a, a terrible uh, legal uh, rep representation with with selective policing all these things that are basically out of people's control so there was a there was a strong sense that people's pasts were sort of had a big structural component but um when they um when the, 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 the sort of people working for the organization try to prepare people for, for their re-entry, um, they completely, singularly identified and stressed um, the choices that people make going forward. And they said, like, it's fully your responsibility now what you do with your life. 
And there is something kind of stimulating perhaps about that. But at the same time, we know that people coming out of prison um, often uh, are struggling with addiction, with disease, um, have low levels of education and are facing enormous, um, you know, barriers, including discrimination on the labor market. So it's really hard for them to kind of make it and they're kind of set up to fail. Yet we are telling them that it's all uh, on their shoulders, that it's it's fully in, in within their reach. And um, so it's a sense of a sort of a purely agentic future um, that that I thought was sort of a really stark contrast to people's awareness that their past was very much uh, shaped by structural forces. And I and I I came to kind of question um, how do we resolve these uh, these different ways of looking at the, the things that shape our lives? So, and from there to huge data sets. So. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've always approached research as um, kind of a way to address questions. And um, depending on the question you ask, different kinds of data and and um, and research are, I think, um, are called for. So um, one of the questions I, I had that came out of this project is how how do people more broadly think about these matters? And um, one of the things I became fascinated with is this question uh, of, of, you know, historic high levels, not just of mass incarceration in a country like the US, but also of economic inequality. And uh, and how this sort of aligns or, or, or not misaligns with people's beliefs about the factors that shape um, our life outcomes that, that make uh, why people are poor or rich. Um, and, and that's something that I thought um, uh, is, is, is actually helpful to study uh, by zooming out a little bit and looking at that, that trend over time. And that's what I, what I did with this, uh, in this paper. So can you say something? Because I can imagine readers and students might find the, the middle part of your paper a little daunting. So the paper starts with an explanation of a puzzle. And I think that part seems very intuitive. And then you have a number of really gigantic tables. Uh, so so what would you say to students who are sort of... Uh... Well, what I would say is what I, what, I, what I do myself, which is ignore the tables and just look at the pictures. Um, so, I mean, <laughs> graphs, graphs are visual tools to, um, yeah. to describe relationships, uh, in, in a, in a way that is just more, hopefully more informative and, mm -hmm. and helpful. And, that, and that, that's what they're meant for. I mean, most, most sociologists, uh, particularly sort of quantitative, they'll, they'll just sort of skip right ahead to the figures and, uh, skim the tables. And if they are convinced or compelled, then they'll read the text. Um, I hope that you won't only look at the pictures, but um, but you can you should feel free to ignore entirely the tables and just focus on the text <laughs> and figures, and that should give you the information you need. Okay, so what is the so what is the key information that students should get from? Uh... What I would like people to take away from the paper is that we we find ourselves in the situation that that I think is puzzling, um, where we don't quite see the level of public consternation, of worries, of concern that we would expect. Um, I offer what I, what I propose is a solution to that puzzle um, by saying, look, we need to ask not just how people think about inequality and why people help, may hold misperceptions or why they may hold 
um, unwarranted belief in meritocracy. But we need to see how inequality itself um, makes people less able to to fully see it and recognize it and contest it. Uh, and that's that's the link that I try to make in the paper. And I illustrate that by uh, drawing on all these data that you can just skim and look <laughs> okay. at the pictures. Okay. So uh, in terms of insights, so, so your paper refers to meritocracy, uh, but what is meritocracy then? Yeah, so meritocracy is this concept that was coined in, in the 50s by a couple of different people. Hannah Arendt is credited for it. Uh, Michael Young wrote a book that is probably most influential. He wrote it in 1957, I believe. He was uh, um, very involved with the Labour Party in, in, in Britain. And he went on to, to start and found the Open University as a way of providing access to higher education for sort of non-traditional students. So um, he wrote this book as a um, dystopia, as a warning of where we were heading with society. It is, it is a very, very strange book, by the way. It's like a satirical <laughs> uh, yeah, novel you need to, sort of, yeah. That's right. You need yeah. to know a lot about the context yeah. in, in which he's writing to fully understand. Um, so I, I read it with my students, but it takes a lot of sort of setting the stage to to get a good sense of, it's hard to just pick up and, and understand. And that's exactly the problem because a lot of people have fully misunderstood his argument. So he, he wrote some really angry letters um, uh, up to the year before he died in, in, in the 2000s, early 2000s, to, for instance, Tony Blair, who was then the prime minister of, of the UK, um, because Tony Blair and many other leaders around the world have taken this notion of meritocracy as like an ideal that we need to strive for as a template for how we design uh, sort of a fair um, society. And that's, that's the opposite of what he meant. What he described is that, and what he sort of put his finger on really, really well, is that meritocracy in essence isn't, um, it's not a system that produces um, equality. It's a system that legitimizes, that justifies inequality. Um, so it provides a, a justification for unequal outcomes. And, um, and there's something, something sort of that is, so he, he can't, if you think about like the more aristocratic societies that, that we in the West kind of come from, uh, where people are born into their position of privilege and power, um, in those societies, he argues, People know how unequal things are. They they um, they will never blame themselves for you know who their parents were, but in a meritocracy, things are just as unequal often. But we are told that we have no one but ourselves to blame for where we find ourselves in society, and that is particularly damning. So then, what is if we talk about meritocracy now? Is it a system? Is it a belief? Is it an ideology? How would you describe it sociologically? What sort of? Yeah, I would I would describe it as a um, as a way of understanding. Um, I mean, it's both an ideal and a way of understanding how things currently work. So um, the way I look at it in the paper is to basically ask: To what extent do people think? that life outcomes really are driven by how hard we work, um, how talented we are. And, and, and to the extent that people do think of, um, uh, think of life that way, they hold a more or less meritocratic view of um, how our labor market and our education works.
Yeah. And uh, to the extent that people think that, no, it's actually, you know, the family you're born in, the people you know, the connections you have, or perhaps the color of your skin or your gender identity that really shapes uh, where you end up in life and how you're treated by others, then that would give reason to have a, a more structural understanding of inequality. So basically, you, you contrast two different sort of understandings that people can have about how society works, right? That's right. And, is, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I, I distinguish between the perceptions that people have of the extent of inequality, um, the, the explanations that they hold for why things are the way they are, and then their political attitudes, basically the consequences of their uh, perceptions and their beliefs. And the three are connected, of course, but they're not necessarily sort of connected um, sort of quite, quite as directly as we may think. Yeah. No. So, and so you find some changes over time. Uh, and the, so partly because inequalities have been on the rise. Uh, but I was also wondering, so do you, could you connect these changes over time to sort of what is vaguely and broadly called neoliberalism? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a big part of it. Um, uh -huh. I mean, in a way, a, a market is sort of meant to be a meritocracy where people are treated equally. Uh, but it's also uh, an institution where we kind of equate human value with market value and where we reduce people to their productive capacity. And, um, and so there's this really close alignment, I think, between sort of market ideas and approaches that are embodied in neoliberalism uh, and notions of meritocracy. So, yeah, Magna, you have a question. You look like, yeah. Uh, yeah, I have. Yeah. More of a yeah. comment than a question, yeah. <laughs> really. No, but, but I think it's interesting, actually, because uh, about the like, like the ideal of market society, there's this really fascinating uh, paper, I think it's from 1996, by John Goldthorpe, where he, where he discusses Friedrich Hayek uh, on meritocracy. Mm -hmm. And Hayek was really like, meritocracy is, is bullshit. <laughs> it's like, that's not what the market is supposed to, that's not, that's not what the markets are supposed to prioritize or something. It's about supply and demand, and that's efficient. And it's not about merit, it's not about skill or anything like that. So Hayek had like a very realist <laughs> interpretation of what was yeah. going on, which is kind of like a non-rosy version of why capitalism works, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. Him. So, so Hayek being the, the great ideologue of neoliberalism, so that's yes. interesting. I, yeah, I agree. I, Hayek was, was very, um, uh, he, he, he saw very clearly that uh, market has nothing to say about value, about dessert, about merit. Uh, but I do think that that is unfortunately how a lot of people uh, understand the market currently, how uh, government uh, makes policies that kind of equate the two and that reduce people's contribution and, and importance to society purely to how much they have to uh, sort of produce or, or contribute economically. Mm. Yeah. So, so finally, before we move to Magnus' paper, uh, so you do see some differences between countries, right? Can you see so you see, you see enormous differences between countries in uh, how sort of strong popular um, cultural notions and beliefs about uh, meritocracy are. And you also see differences in the level of concern. But what's interesting is that um, they're kind of, they're not at all related the way you would think they, they are. So uh, I see that in a lot of more sort of very highly unequal societies, people are actually expressing very little concern. 
And um, part of the explanation is that we also see in those countries very strong beliefs in meritocracy. Mm-hmm. So is Norway in your sample? Yeah, it is. And I, I'd have to look it up. But I think Norway is not uh, exactly uh, showing the, the trend that many other countries are. So Norway may be some of a, somewhat of an um, exception. Relatively low levels of inequality, but also relatively um, low levels of concern about inequality. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that makes well, sense. Which is which is realistic, right? <laughs> I mean, it it's, um, seems like a good estimation of the situation. Then, so this no, absolutely the, right. Yeah. So there's there's two reasons to be yeah. um, unworried, unconcerned about inequality. One is that you live in a perfect society. The other <laughs> exactly. is that you're deeply, deeply um, um, uh, sort of uninformed about uh, yeah. the situation you find yourself <laughs> yeah. in. Well. So this is looking good for the Norwegians. So, yeah. Manja, so your paper is called A Struggle on Two Fronts. So as we said, um, you wrote it with Vegard Jarnes, who's actually, whose work has been discussed in an earlier episode of this podcast. I first suggested another article because I said I wanted to talk about Norwegian egalitarianism. And then you said, no, no, this is the one I want. <laughs> so can you say why this you think is the best paper that you have to understand Norwegian, uh, the proverbial uh, egalitarianism. I think, uh, I think the reason why I, I prefer that one for this discussion is that it shows, I think it shows something critical about egalitarianism that we've, we've been suspecting for, for some time, because some of these studies of like privileged Norwegians, uh, I think privileged Scandinavians more generally actually, is that they have this very strong predilection for kind of downplaying of differences in a way. So uh, if, if, you, if, you, if you look at the qualitative interviews with like business leaders or very wealthy people, they will be like, one thing is that is they, they, they'll always say like, we, we are not that rich. Look at the really rich people or something like that. And they would also actually exhibit a kind of, um, kind of deliberate attempts to, to not display their wealth. Like there was this this one informant who actually said in an interview that he had two separate cars, one for taking to work, which was like his modest, uh, cheap car in a way, so as not to piss off his his coworkers. And similarly, uh, in in discussions with 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 like more like cultural elite or what you would call it, you have things like people who are who are professors who would not call themselves professors. They would say, "Well, I teach." Or something. I'm a teacher, basically, which, which is, is like a, a kind of banal example, I guess. But which is ca- exactly what I do. I feel, very, <laughs> I feel yeah. caught. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so it's, so it's all. It's a very similar country. It's a very similar <laughs> national habitus, I guess. But yeah. so the kind of thing we were suspecting about this is is that does this in some way kind of make symbolic domination worse <laughs> in a way mm-hmm. whereas you have like actually very privileged people who would downplay not own not own up to it or kind of trying to hide it or 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 or, or something like that so the, the thing that uh, i think is interesting about that is that that's a kind of like a suspicion that we had from from based from interviews and studies of of wealthy and privileged people but what transpires in this paper is that that kind of down-to-earthness, that kind of downplaying of differences actually works <laughs> in a way. So that's because the, the informants tell us that, well, they are, I mean, these are people with below average volumes of capital. So they're not like marginalized. It's more like 
common people <laughs> or what you would call it. So basically they show a lot of like anti-elitist hostility, like they dislike conspicuous consumption where people buy all this expensive stuff and, and all the luxury and cham champagne and everything. But there's also this kind of dislike of high culture and obscure literature and strange theater and everything like that, which is kind of familiar. But the interesting thing is that they would tell in the interviews that while they are kind of skeptical of people up above, they think it's okay when they're like when they're not when they're not like um, what's the word for that like too standoffish or too too kind of feeling better than everyone else. If they if they're down to earth and they're not snobbish and they treat everyone the same, then it's okay in a way. Mm -hmm. So to us, that kind of shows that uh, that's why we it's, we subtitled the paper uh, the symbolic market for down to earthness because it shows that this kind of this kind of downplaying or difference or not wanting to seem snobbish it's not just about preserving your self image or something or it might be uh, subjectively of course for people doing it but it has a more important effect for the for the reproduction of class relationships is what we think about this yeah, so what you describe in your paper is actually, so you call it a struggle on two fronts. So yeah. these people are, so they're both sort of drawing boundaries upwards and downwards. Yeah. So can you say a bit more about that? Yeah, so they have the boundaries upwards, uh, which is kind of in, in, in moral terms often, that they would apply a kind of uh, moral critique of people above them in the social space uh, for, for, for like squandering, wasting money or even or like reading uh, esoteric literature that they don't even understand themselves <laughs> and things like that. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, so that that's kind of how they challenge or try to critique people above them. So I think we, we see this as they almost try to reinstate like a moral hierarchy that would reverse the ordinary social hierarchy where the people on the, the, the people with lots of capital they're actually at the bottom of the of the moral hierarchy in a way but so they're just, rich they may be rich but they're bad people yeah or some of them <laughs> or they some of them or they yeah. must be because they're rich or they're, yeah something yeah. like that but at the same time, they draw uh, kind of boundaries to people below, below them, which are like the unemployed or immigrants or people depending on benefits or something like that. And the interesting thing is that, that that's also a kind of like moral boundary drawing. It's, it's because people have bad morals. They're just happy to get money from for free from the state and things like that. And they're poor work morale and everything. So that, that's the kind of boundary work they do downwards. And what we think is a kind of... I don't know how to put this, kind of like an ironic twist, is that the very same kind of criteria that like ordinary people use to distance themselves from people below them is exactly the same kind of thing that people above them use against them in a way. So you're yeah. kind of reproducing the same kind of discourse that people use to talk down about you in a way, mm -hmm. that, to put it in a, perhaps too sharply, but that's a kind of ironic twist of that whole boundary drawing thing. Yes. So what struck me was also the the references to, especially in the sort of downward boundary drawing, was the sort of the bodily um, boundary drawing. So, you mm. know, people looking bad being, and I think this is something that came up in the podcast before actually the sort of embodiment of class that actually came up quite clearly. So both the low cut dresses and the uh, not taking care of yourself and bad mm. eating habits. So it was really interesting to see this sort of also strongly embodied Mm. Uh, moral boundary drawing. I think it also shows that how much you can learn from from looking at class systems by starting with the 
with the lower classes and the lower strata. And I think that has been a recurrent theme actually in this podcast that so, so many of the papers and the articles and the studies by sociologists have about have been about the, the, the middle classes and the upper middle classes. And that actually you get to understand different things and maybe even you get to understand the class system better if you uh, look from the bottom rather than <laughs> from the top. I think that's uh, so that's was I really appreciated that uh, in your article. So I have uh, one final question. So you also use your analysis for critique of the work of Michel Lamont that we've mm -hmm. discussed quite often in this podcast. Can you say something about that? I think there are there are several uh, <laughs> several issues <laughs> actually uh, we have with with her specific approach I, on a, on the on the more like general theoretical level for us it's 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 partly about realizing that like that social inequality does not rise with the boundary drawing or something like that and you need to situate and understand symbolic boundaries very directly in relationship to people's position in the social space the capital that they have and what they can mobilize to use and it's also the issue about it's 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 uh, kind of dangerous to reduce, I think, symbolic boundary work to, to the explicit discursive articulations that people would offer. Like we do in interviews, and this is what they tell us, but I think the actual boundaries and the, the, that are maintained is not, cannot be reduced to what people would like put into words in a way. But there's a more specific point, which is about the, the different, what does you call it, like repertoires or rules of, of boundary drawing. Like you would draw either uh, socioeconomic boundaries or you would draw cultural boundaries or you would draw moral boundaries, I think. And she uses this and maps like the relative salience of, of moral boundaries in the US versus cultural boundaries in France and, and things like that. But so our, our point is basically that when you have that kind of thinking about it when you try to map the different salience you kind of miss out how they're very tightly connected to each other and very much in interweaven really in in what people say and, and we see that very clearly in the paper it's it's really like a mesh of talking about their culture and their lifestyle and their morale it's like it's very tied together in actual boundary uh, drawings so we find that anyway yes yeah that's uh indeed well taken. So it's also something that I recognize again from my own research that, that aesthetic and moral and cultural boundary drawing tends to happen very much enmeshed hmm. in actual situations. And I guess that also kind of connects with the national habitus thing, actually, yes. because it kind of, mm -hmm. I guess, the, the more underlying point, again, is that people's morality is, of course, a cultural thing. <laughs> In a way, it's, yeah. it's tied yes. to yeah. everything else about culture. So I think yeah. part of, I wouldn't say this, uh, put this too hardly on Lamont specifically, but there's a kind mm -hmm. of tendency to always reduce culture to, to cultural to consumption. Aesthetic, to yeah, aesthetic. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think it's also I think it may may actually be be related to this sort of uh, upper middle class bias of academic work because I think it's more um, I think it's much more typical of more educated people as people who have been to university to really think of cultural consumption and aesthetics as something that is really different from morality. So I think mm. it's maybe also something that you pick up in university, this sort of slicing up of the world in distinct realms. Mm. Uh, and I think if you get closer to, well, certainly to sort of the life world in Habermas terms, but also if, to people who are, you know, uh, less trained to, to sort of talk about their cultural styles, 
at length and to make it into something that's really salient to their identity and have all these, you know, skills in talking about books that they read and how they talk about films. And I think this is something, so it's partly, it may also be just a reflection of, you know, the, the people doing sociological research, having these sort of distinct realms in in much more distinct ways and i think we've i think everybody has done research on taste has experienced that that the big difference that you get if you ask people to talk about their cultural styles is that the educated people tend to have you know very complicated long answers and if you <laughs> ask the lower question lower educated or lower classes you ask them about their cultural preferences they would just it would be very short would say, i like mm -hmm. it or I don't because it's you know it's a trick that you learn when you when you go to higher education so you learn how to because this is what we do right we have dinner parties and then we talk mm. about uh, you know. I I think also you have like a, a, a related issue in in some of the survey research mm -hmm. on cultural taste because so many of these questionnaires and so many of the surveys they are so geared to like middle class taste yeah you know, where you ask them about museums, to ask them about concerts, or ask about about visual arts or something like that. And what, what transpires is so often that you have get the kind of the statistical results that show that, well, some people participate in culture and some people don't, in a way, yeah. like the, the engaged, disengaged kind of thing, which yeah. just seems to me to be kind of like a product of the bias in these kind of surveys that people yeah. are, are drawing on. Yeah. We're digressing because we have yes. to move on to the cycling. Uh, so I just want to say, so I'm a little uh, uh, more uncomfortable talking about my own paper. I, the don't reason be, I included be. the reason I included it really was because, as I said at the beginning, I think it's really uh, important to think about egalitarianism as a belief, as opposed to or as a, a practice as opposed to equality. And I think it's really clear with the Dutch royals because you see these multimillionaires on their bikes, you know, really making a point of being normal. And also what's, uh, what I wanted to show in the paper is that egalitarianism actually is a worldview that does have consequences. So it's something that the moment that everybody starts to believe that we're all the same and we're all, you know, uh, equal that it actually it can lead to specific patterns of behavior such as this Dutch cycling culture, which is uh, different from what Magnus said. It's not it's not in decline as such, but rather what happens is because uh, because the national habitus of so the sort of shared understanding of you know shared patterns of behavior that make up. Uh, Dutch society tend to be so there also tends is growing inequality there is also growing divisions between different social strata so it's actually very much what Jonathan is saying so the richer and the poorer people tend to sort of not uh, meet as much as they used to which means that they're less aware of each other and what happens is I would say that this Dutch cycling culture is not so much in this decline as that it becomes more differentiated that people now cycle in different ways. So they cycle in ways that are um, specific to, so they have, you know, the, the hipster people in the cities that they're fixies or they have their, their cargo bikes and their, so there are different ways of cycling rather than just cycling. So this is something that actually is a result of what we see fragmentation and increasing inequality also in the Netherlands. Magda, I was wondering, so you said something about having a buck feet yourself. <laughs> so you're a fan of, uh, 
Yeah, yeah. I, I have like a Dutch Dutch style cargo bike with mm -hmm. what they what they call refer to here as like a Amsterdam riding posture <laughs> with mm -hmm. like with the upright uh, sitting and everything. So yeah, that that's uh, that's an interesting thing actually because uh, I wonder how this relates to the differentiation of biking in Netherlands because I think here. Although I can't like back this up empirically, my very, very clear hunch it, it's become like a very upper middle class green party supporter kind of thing, the the whole biking culture. So it's people with high education and sometimes high incomes that would like bike and everything. And I've, I've been kind of curious about why would this be like an upper middle class thing, right? Why will because it's like it's cheap, it's efficient, it's. Uh, can be comfortable if the weather's okay and everything. So it would seem like a, a, a good option, but but that seems very socially skewed in a way. Yeah. It is so it's interesting that globally we see an emergence of the sort of sort of cycling culture, like a global cycling class. Uh, and my explanation for this, and I've actually worked on this also with uh, some urban planners and geographers who are working on this. So in this article, I describe it as conspicuous non-consumption. And I think that's what cycling in a way really is. It's really showing off that you're not spending money on a car. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's not only green, uh, which of course also is, a, is a, not only a, a political uh, and moral viewpoint, but also in a way is a cultural statement of belonging to a specific group of people that also is about conspicuous non-consumption. But I think conspicuous non-consumption is also something that for a long time has been really typical of educated upper middle classes, like, you know, teachers. And so if you look mm. at the Bourdieuian scheme, that's what you see too. Yeah, Jonathan? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, isn't it also the case that um, to be able to use your bike, say for your daily commute, you know, in pre-COVID times, mm -hmm. um, that that requires a lot of resources in itself, yeah. right? That that yeah. often requires having a really expensive location where, where your house or your apartment is located, uh, right? So here in the U.S., um, if you look at the people who take the bus, and that's a very distinct socioeconomic sort of segment of society, with some exceptions, of course. But um, you know, ha being having access to to uh, a bicycle isn't uh, isn't all of it. It's it's having access to a very short a homework good, yeah. commute, uh, yeah. and that is the thing where a lot of the distinction sort of comes in, I think, and a lot of the material differences. Yeah, mm. that's also there. Are actually, a lot of differences in in between countries in in the possibilities. So I think also in the in the U.S. indeed, uh, public transportation tends to be much more stigmatized. I remember an episode of The Simpsons where Lisa Simpson says, "I'm going the bus where all the poor people are," <laughs> and I think this also is a very American way of thinking about public transportation. Uh, yeah. And I think also I think also being on a public transportation would not be as uh, stigmatized in the, but definitely in many larger cities, being able to bike to work means that you're close enough to work to bike there. Mm. Um, but that's also something that has, so I'm not sure about the US patterns, but that's changed in the sense that in, in, uh, in all over Europe until the 1960s, workers used to take their bikes to, uh, to work pretty much mm. anywhere. And it's also something that we see in, uh, and also in Asia, slightly more recently. So what happens? What happens is not that um, is that is that when countries get richer, uh, that people stop cycling, mm -hmm. um, and that they take the car, and also mm. that then suburbanism sort of kicks in, uh, and so patterns of of settlement 
start to change quite considerably. Mm. Uh, so what is what is really the distinct part about about these cycling classes and about some uh, European countries such as the Netherlands and also parts of Germany and Denmark is that you know that people remain uh, using the bike so they don't mm. stop cycling when they when they can. And I think yeah. the new pattern the new pattern of cycling is probably the the you know the people like Magna with their cargo bikes. <laughs> that's a new that's a new. <laughs> pattern indeed of people who 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 choose to stay uh to to not to move to suburban places and to remain close to city centers and are willing to pay a lot of money to to live there yeah yeah i think so yeah. so i i agree i think it's it's part like the material uh, or convenience <laughs> uh, measured in, in in kind of in in commuting distance and everything like that but it also seems to me like that the the, the rise of the cycling classes as you call it and and heard that phrase before actually but it seems to me that the, the kind of the the fascination with the bike kind of ties in with what is actually almost well, this is the wrong word, almost like the traditional culture of the cultural capital fractions in a way. Because if you if you look at all the kind of lifestyle surveys, even in, in some of our own work on, on lifestyles and everything, what is distinctive about high cultural capital people is that they have this kind of ascetic taste in a way. It's like simple <laughs> pleasures or something like that. So the I, I think it's partly also that the bike communicates something like, oh, I, I choose like the simple solution. Oh, I'll put up yeah. with the rain. Oh, I'll, 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 I'll negate the comfort of the car and everything. I'll be all yeah. cold and hands all sore and everything. But mm -hmm. so I think it's yeah. something to do with that as well. Yeah, it is. It is a clear lifestyle statement. I think in the U.S. even more. I mean, all these sort of if you um, all these the Harvard professors taking their bikes to. Uh, yeah, I think it's a combination of, of indeed, yeah. maybe some people in more progressive and liberal, highly educated settings, um, you know, sort of doing egalitarianism by their um, non-consumption, as you call it, right? Conspicuous non-consumption, not using their their, yeah. their, their cars. But um, it's also a sign of, of gentrification very much uh, in, in the area where I am. So when I moved to the U.S. in 2010, uh, there were no bike lanes in in my neighborhood, but gradually they they appeared, and with that, um, I think you also saw, and it's not a sort of simple cause and effect thing, but these things went simultaneously. You see the Whole Foods mo moving in. Uh, you see like the whole sort yeah. of infrastructure changing. So the whole uh, Whole Foods, you may want to explain. <laughs> Whole yeah, Whole Foods is a is a it's just a very expensive supermarket um, that uh, yeah probably sort of a luxury supermarket like like you find them in in other countries as well. Um, kind but of it's all organic. It's yeah. organic, right? Yeah, the idea is that yeah. they sell mostly locally produced yeah. and organic uh, foods. Uh, now, currently, by the way, they are actually owned by Amazon, uh, so some of that may change. <laughs> so, no, but it's indeed. I think it's a very recognizable form of distinction. Uh, it's actually indeed interesting that you can see it around the world, um, and it emerged alongside. And I think that takes us back to Jonathan's article. It actually emerged alongside the the sort of rise in inequality. I think that's really fascinating. So this whole green, uh, ascet new ascetic sort of uh, organic uh, behavior of yeah. mostly progressive people is exactly indeed what you talk about. Because I think these are a lot of people that will probably say that inequality is a, probably a terrible thing and that, uh, uh, and here they uh, are. <laughs> 
Yeah, there's some interesting work on this in the, in the sociology of consumption, where people are, 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 are like researching that kind of ethical consumption or, or, or green consumption kind of mm -hmm. thing, and how that, in a way, I mean, has, has some kind of political motivations also, but, but it's still very tied up in kind of boundary drawing and, and, and dis dis distinguishing themselves yeah. as, as uh, in some way, better than everybody else <laughs> in yeah. some respect. There, well, there's there's one metaphor that I think particularly sort of applies really well to cycling, which is um, uh, I think it was uh, Sam Sam Friedman and Daniel Lorison in their book the the class ceiling. Uh, they described some of the advantages and privileges that that some people have uh, as sort of a uh, they call it the following wind. So it's like the wind in your back that is yeah. pushing you forward. <laughs> And and maybe we can all relate to how it's a lot easier to to feel the wind when it's in our face, and and it's really easy to completely ignore um, that following wind and to attribute it to your own you know pedaling. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Well, that's a wonderful metaphor that ties all of these articles together. As we're moving towards the end of the discussion, I would like to ask you: so, where to go from here? Now that we're talking about growing inequalities, changing beliefs about inequalities, so where do we go from here, Manga? Uh, okay, so my response to that, uh, <laughs> I think, well, there's a there's a whole whole heap of issues I think arising from all of this we've been talking about here. One thing I've been th thinking about ever since we were talking about about Jonathan's paper earlier is is how uh, how what he's showing is is connecting to what uh, Thomas Piketty is trying to show in his new book, where he's also trying to explain well w if inequality is rising, why isn't hasn't it been challenged more, right? And uh, actually, it'd be interesting to hear hear more reflections on the similarities or differences between your accounts because, well, the Piketty's account is basically, well, well, the party structure is changing because the left is becoming more and more the party of the highly educated and they have no, no real interest in trying to challenge inequality. So, uh, so, so that's one issue that, that should be looked at further, I think. But it's also, I think, the kind of connection between what we've been talking about here with the egalitarianism and the cultural versions of it and, and, the, and the idea of meritocracy and how that kind of connects with what's happening politically in a way. And, and part of the research that we, we're trying to look into now is that to what extent is actually political choice or political preference just a part of cultural lifestyle in a way just, just does like politics become sucked into the whole distinction game so that that people will like adopt certain attitudes just because it's part of their status group culture in a way and to what extent does that, does that drive political polarization uh, which is something i'm curious about on a more like simple level <laughs> i think i'd be uh, I, i'd be interested in in thinking about what, what, whether what we're finding in, in the Norwegian context here, whether, whether that's like transfers to other countries or how similar or how different that is in, in countries with uh, perhaps uh, stronger hierarchical traditions like, like Germany or France or something, and, and the, not least the US and the UK. So tons of issues, really. <laughs> okay, Jonathan, where do, you, yeah, where do so we go from here? Yeah. Where, where, where I think it sort of is a very fruitful area for for research um, is is sort of continuing on the question of how uh, inequality itself may actually um, kind of perpetuate it. So, and I think for that uh, we need to zoom in a lot more from the sort of bird's eye view that I've tried to give in in this paper and look at contexts 
um, and basically ask how do people learn about inequality in the first place and how do they draw on uh, their own experiences and by maybe comparisons within uh, their own networks um, and sort of how are the contexts in which people grow up related to how they come to see uh, their world as well as their own place in it. So one way in which I'm, I'm beginning to, um, to try to answer that question is to identify particular contexts in which um, we can actually study this because it's a, it's a really big question that needs to be boiled down to a particular kind of research design. So one thing I'm doing is uh, I, have, I have data for um, college students around the university around uh, the U.S. So university students around the U.S. And um, uh, what I'm doing is I'm kind of following them through their uh, years in, in college to see how their beliefs about inequality change as um, a consequence of the, the, the context of their college, like the student body and the interactions that they have with other students, in particular, who their roommate is when they live on campus and how these things impact the way that people um, understand inequality. Uh, so that, that's one thing I'm looking at. Um, and um, a broader question is basically once people learn about inequality and once they develop a certain understanding or worldview, what makes them change their mind, uh, if anything? Like how pliable are people's beliefs? Um, and, and, and when they do change, um, how does that come about? So there, there are interesting examples uh, internationally of um, sort of public mobilizations like, like uh, in Chile, for instance, the, the last year, almost every day, there was a big mass gathering of people protesting. And after a full year of protest, they've actually achieved something huge, which is to rewrite the entire constitution of the country. Um, Argentina just last week adopted a, a millionaire tax. Like, how do these things happen? Um, so what does a successful mobilization and contestation of inequality look like? And under which conditions uh, is that likely to occur? Interesting, right? That there is so little attention for what happens in Latin America, where it's indeed, it's really huge, but uh, everybody's... Yeah, absolutely. And, way, and yeah. When we, when we tend to think about inequalities as growing, but it, that, that's a Western story. Like in, in Latin American countries, whereas inequalities are still at a pretty high level comparatively, the, the trend is actually downward. Uh, so, so we see uh, economic inequalities kind of being uh, decreasing in, in many countries in, in Latin America. Mm -hmm. And um, if you take a global perspective like, um, like Milanovic does in, in Branko Milanovic in his book, then we actually see the world becoming more equal in some ways as differences between countries actually um, are, are reduced even though inequalities within countries uh, still are quite are quite large. Yeah, so Branko Milanovic is of the famous elephant uh, graph that shows uh, particularly that uh, the divisions within developed or richer countries are actually uh, growing, right? Uh, yeah, so that so basically the yeah. situation of many sort of uh, lower and, and middle class people uh, is is getting tougher, uh, yeah. but that only that only applies to people in Western countries. Everybody else is actually kind of benefiting. Yeah, yeah. Cases. So what's uh, so what's the point of studying all this, Magna? What would you say? I, I, well, I think basically, 
what we can see is that the uh, that, uh, that social divisions or, or class divisions and their reproduction they have all kind of of problematic uh, effects on people's lives so from from the, from everything from like their health outcomes to their life expectancy to their educational opportunities to their uh, ability to make themselves heard in politics or to be involved in in, in anything like that i think there, there's all all these tremendously important uh, effects of social inequality or class divisions on people's lives so i I would basically say that the question of how class divisions, with all their pernicious effects, how they come to be maintained or reproduced over time, not, not just between generations, but in general, the system of inequality, how it's maintained, how it's reproduced, is like a crucial question for, for understanding this, I think. And yeah. also, that's uh, also about people's cultural beliefs about it, which mm -hmm. is if people have like very favorable ideas about inequality, they think everything is just and it's just meritocratic, then it's then it's uh, more likely that it won't change, I guess. No. <laughs> so, yes, Jonathan. Yeah, I, I wholeheartedly concur. I think that is indeed sort of the, the most important reason why we study these kind of things. I mean, ultimately, every question about inequality um, and every belief that a person has about inequality is is kind of a direct sort of um, has a direct consequence for how people relate to their their fellow you know a, a country men and women or, or human beings more generally. Uh, so when you say uh, we live in a meritocracy, you are you are directly saying something about those in power and those who are who may be struggling, mm -hmm. and 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 that has that has enormous consequence. So before we go to the end, I've asked you to think about assignments for the students. So uh, there will be written versions of this, so you don't have to explain it all, but could you so briefly suggest the sort of activities that students could do uh, when they take this podcast course? Maybe Jonathan first? Yeah, so what I was thinking is the, the paper that, that you read um, uh, draws on data up to 2012. So uh, what would be interesting is to pick a country that is featured in a paper and find more recent data or polls or government briefings or news reports on the topic of inequality and then um, make the case for why you think based on what you read in the paper and what you have found in terms of uh, more recent data, um, what do you think um, has, has, has happened with popular beliefs in meritocracy? Have they since strengthened or weakened or remained the same? Yes, thank you. So Magna, what would you have students do? <laughs> I think uh, one kind of useful exercise is to actually try to try to talk to the people you know about how do they regard people around them and try to have like honest conversations with people <laughs> mm -hmm. about how they perceive people above them and below them and how they would like understand their own position within like a, a system of social inequality. There is a tremendous tendency for, as, as Jonathan was talking about, for people to regard their own experiences and what they know as being typical and ordinary and usual in some way. Mm -hmm. So it's both, I think, trying to get like more perspective on who you are and how you fit into this and how people around you perceive this structure and system and how they would perceive other people in it. Okay, thank you. Very interesting, both. A lot of work, also a more like full <laughs> research project than just a student <laughs> assignment, life, but very interesting. Life's work. Yeah. This is almost the end of this very interesting conversation that we had about a 
cultural beliefs or just beliefs about inequality. So talking about how what people believe about inequality, if it exists, how bad it is, how it uh, is caused, and also what sort of consequences it had. And this is actually uh, something that I would see as a fairly sort of new field of research. It's actually something that uh, I haven't seen much until maybe 10 or 15 years ago. I think it's a very exciting and also important way because how inequality operates also really depends on how people uh, see this inequality, both in terms of their everyday life experience, but also I think in terms of, as you just mentioned, political mobilization. Uh, so how people think about it, what can be done about it, if people actually feel something should be done about it. So I think want to thank you very, very much for a very stimulating conversation. So the final question that we always end with is the question, what can't you let go this week after this conversation? So is there something that you will keep thinking about? So first, Jonathan, is there something that you can't yeah, let go? Yeah, I mean, I, I, guess, I guess what I'm, what I will continue to, to ponder is whether people's views about inequality can ever sort of align with reality or whether people will always find ways to find and create uh, inequalities, um, distinguish themselves from others, invent new ways of exclusion, um, etc. Right. So to what extent is it indeed sort of a useful exercise to, to ask how wrong people are? Um, or maybe we should just accept that that is going to be always the case. Yeah. So Magnet, what can't you let go? After this? <laughs> well, well, I, I think I, kind of uh, Perhaps like a general way of thinking about what, what, what we've been seeing here is that there is no kind of like systematic tendency for people just to perceive inequality correctly, uh, quote unquote, or to have like a vision of this as problematic. So basically the ideas people have about their society and the issues around them, they don't follow automatically from from either their own position in the social structure or the development of that social structure in general. So I think the idea about how these things kind of change is basically well it relates to the question about political mobilization basically is can it can this be changed would it be in effect possible for us in in 21st century to have a, to have like a political vision where someone would be able to like install a different image and different understanding of inequality around us so yeah, so what I can't let go. Well, this seems like why aren't why is not everybody a sociologist just like us, right? <laughs> so, uh, so what I so what what strikes me and what I will keep thinking about. So one of the issues, of course, always in doing social sciences is sort of is a sort of false consciousness belief. You know that we have we have studied this and we know how the world is, and that means that we will you know we will be able to tell about other people that you know they believe a lot of things about the world and they believe a lot about themselves and how they see the world and here's us saying, well, actually, we are more right than you about yourself and I think from the beginning as a as a researcher this has you know this has really uh being nagging me in the sense that you know this is what we do right so we have we say things about people that people and we believe that we are right and they are not and we tell them that things are different than they are or we don't tell them but we write it down in very difficult to read scholarly articles that they will never see um and here we are and still we we believe it but ethically i think that's a very awkward position to be in sometimes 
Uh, but I think that's probably then what it means to be a social scientist. Can I say something? Yes. I, I, th I think actually <laughs> maybe this is maybe this is too like Chomskyan, but I, mm -hmm. I think that like yeah. if most people had like the time and luxury to study social inequality the way the way we do, I mean to step out of the all the problems of everyday life and just sit back and study social life, I, th I think then they would see more of the same things that we're seeing. So maybe a kind of material <laughs> explanation. <laughs> So if people would have more resources, then they would gradually all if become they, social. If they were researching it, they would see <laughs> would see the same thing. Okay, it's basically what I what I guess. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm so. Until that happens, then I suppose it's up to us, right, uh, to uh, figure this out, and then maybe see if we can get people to uh, listen to us. Let's not quite surrender to uh, everybody no. having their personal truth. No, exactly. So, on this uh, cheerful note, uh, let's <laughs> end this conversation. Well, I want to thank you so much for uh, joining me. And Jonathan was very enjoyable. I want to thank all the listeners for listening to us. So after this, there will be one more podcast for the course, which will be with Dave O'Brien and Luke Bronze, where we wrap up semester of conversation so for now thank you so much both of you for joining us thank and you I'll hope, for having us yeah, well, my pleasure yeah and I hope to see you again at some point also in real life after this uh, COVID pandemic yes. has gone well um, see you next time bye yeah